This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third episode in exploring one of America's favorite Gothic writers, Charlie Jackson. Uh, although we've since learned that she was also one of America's favorite homemaker essayists <laughs> during her day. Uh, you talk about range. I, I mean, know. She went from funny to absolutely scary. And uh, Jackson, in The Haunting of Hill House, as well as her various other novels, shocks us as she explores the inner workings of our minds and our most dysfunctional relationships. Always good fodder for that. <laughs> uh, she chose to illustrate and really expose the effects of anxiety and distress through this genre that we recognize as gothic, um, although many of us, including myself, Still get a little confused as to what that is, which I hope we will revisit for a minute today. In episode one, we introduced Jackson and mostly talked about her early years, her complicated relationship with her mother, and chapter one of The Haunting of Hill House. In episode two, we walked together from chapter two to chapter four, but we also spent a lot of time talking about haunted houses and the ones that inspired Jackson as well as the one that she created in her own story. And we ended episode two with the first encounter Theo and Eleanor have with what I'm going to assume are ghosts. <laughs> Whatever haunts this well. place is genuinely spooky. So today we will try to finish the rest of the book, which I know is a big ask. Well, there is a lot of plot to cover, that's for sure. But we'll try to hit the high points or low points, depending on how oh, <laughs> you want to define that. Puns, puns. <laughs> Well, just to let you know what's coming up, I'm looking forward to reading The Lottery in our next episode. And uh, today the focus uh, is on understanding these paranormal experiences, what is going on in this house, and why people in general are fascinated by these kinds of books. What are they about? I mean, uh, so to get to those answers, let's focus on the, uh, the two Gothic heroines, Eleanor and Theodora. 
that might be a good start. By the way, uh, is, is a gothic heroine different from any other kind of heroine? Again, um, adding the word gothic to something always seems to be suggesting something, but I'm not sure what exactly <laughs> it's supposed to be suggesting. I know. It does give it a little texture. Uh, we've talked about gothic novels before when we read Frankenstein, so if you really want to get into that, please uh, revisit that series. But just a quick rundown on the subgenre. It kind of comes out of the 18th century British lit. Traditionally, these books carry certain characteristics, set of distinctions. Uh, for example, gothic stories are usually set in a castle or a haunted house in our case. Uh, there's this air of mystery. There could be a prophecy. Lots of times there are omens, visions, that sort of thing. Lots of times you're going to see supernatural manifestations. Lots of emotion. You can usually count on a good damsel in distress. (laughs) A great gothic damsel will be screaming, fainting, sobbing, running, always alone, oppressed, of course, and usually threatened at least by one, maybe more than one evil male. And if she's lucky, she may have been commanded to marry him against her will. It's all great, horrifying fun. Uh, Oh, don't expect the weather to be good. There's supposed to be (laughs) dark weather in a gothic novel. And, of course, the damsel is distressed should be rescued by a male hero. That would be the best sort of ending, although nothing really is guaranteed. You talk about gothic heroines traditionally, though, you would expect the woman to be beautiful, young, usually a virgin, terrified, best of all, hopelessly needing to be saved. But what we have in Hill House are two damsels, and they're definitely different. They're foils, if you can remember that term. They contrast and compare in very obvious ways. They're both young, um, likely beautiful. One is definitely a virgin. The other, we are led to believe, maybe not. Eleanor has been imprisoned by her mother and then by her sister, but Theo has lived a life of freedom and, you know, what we can observe, fairly normalcy. In our case, Theo is liberated. Eleanor is not. Theo's confident and worldly. Eleanor is terribly underconfident, to the point of paranoid. Both have some sort of romantic flirtation with Luke at some point, and these encounters end very differently. Both have already encountered the supernatural in their past. Both may even have paranormal skills. But they confront the haunted house differently and, in fact, are treated by the house very differently. Hmm. Uh, I will say, not to be spoiling anything here, although we will definitely spoil the <laughs> yeah, ending before the end sure. of the episode, uh, Luke does have to save a damsel. He doesn't really get the girl, if you want to use that terminology or even want to, and he's certainly uh, not a Prince Charming character. <laughs> no, and that's another departure Jackson makes from the traditional trope. Uh, a diff- another unusual thing about the way Jackson creates her story is that we don't really see at Hill House any kind of male oppressor. There's not a male villain that Luke must rescue the damsels from. Luke does have to rescue Eleanor, but really he's rescuing her from herself, and that is something to think about. There's no Dracula, no Klaus Michelson, uh, if you want to re- reference the Vampire Diaries, uh. which... I try to do whenever I can. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why Vampire Diaries? Yes. Well, you know, it's Lizzie's current favorite TV show. Uh, She's basically devoted her entire summer, the summer of 2021, to re-watching all eight seasons. So it's been on my mind a uh, a lot lately. My favorite vampire, if you have to know, though, is Damon Salvatore. uh, A clear anti-hero. Gone gothic. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was subjected to a short few episodes of that <laughs> nonsense myself, and I could not do it. So anyway, is uh, Damon's house haunted? Oh, funny. That show really doesn't do think the, the haunted house trope at all. But back to Jackson. I haven't thought about that. Uh, the lack of real identifiable villains makes Hill House an unusual gothic novel. There's no vampires at Hill House. Uh, Jackson does what all good writers do. She uses a genre, but she is not beholden to the rules that it, or if there is such things, of, of, of the style. Uh, and the way that she departs from the conventions of the genre tells us a lot about what her story is trying to talk about. As with all pieces of writing, when we read literature, what we want to understand is what universal truth or theme is the author interested in. And all the elements of any story, the characters, the setting, the plot, whatever, they're taking us somewhere to some single somewhere, some common or observation about the world. Do you mean like the moral of the story? Well, in some books, they're moral. In The Crucible, it is. The Dollhouse, uh, those books are making moral judgments but i don't see jackson doing that i don't think so either she's definitely not commenting on our morality in the book at all well back to what is striking about this house compared to other movies or stories with haunted houses is that there isn't anything in the house to haunt it when i think of haunted houses i think of things in the house that haunt them and uh, when you're riding the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney World, if we can use that as a reference point, I mean, there's a point where the ride spins and you look in a mirror and there's a hologram of a ghost inside your little car and it's supposed to be the scariest point of the ride. The house is scary because it is being haunted by something. The ride is scary because of that little scary hologram, the ghost that's right behind you. Yeah, reason for me not to ride that ride. <laughs> oh, you'll read this book, but you won't ride that ride. <laughs> well, there's no Casper at Hill House, that's for sure. Although, don't tell Mrs. Montague that she keeps finding nuns with the planchette thing. <laughs> <laughs> the walled-in nuns, that's great. Uh, normally, the trope goes that someone has died in the house. There are spirits in the house, and there's a reason why the space is haunted. But, you know, Hill House is not like that at all. Well, it has a history, and the history is definitely ugly and mean-spirited, but it's really the way the inhabitants of the house treated each other while they lived there, as opposed to any outside spirit who is restless walking around. By the time Dr. Montague arrives, it is the house itself that is haunted. There is no little girl walking around the halls like they say happens in The Shining. Again, (laughs) something I will not be watching. (laughs) Well, I have to say back to your point about Mrs. Montague, she is comedy relief every time she opens her (laughs) mouth. Oh, yes. Mrs. Montague, in her omniscience, has this house figured out, and she will not be talked out of her preset ideas that are so obviously wrong. Oh, no. The audience can tell through the fourth wall. So uh, let's talk about Miss Montague for a minute. I mean, she literally made me laugh out loud when I heard her on the, the audible version of the book that I was listening to, I think Jackson might have modeled her after her mother, Geraldine. <laughs> Mrs. Montague is entirely self-orbiting and unobservant, and she's um, you know dismissive to almost everything going on around her, of course. And I don't know, but uh, that's how I imagine Geraldine to have been, and it's just narcissistically perfect. 
She bosses everyone around. She condescends to everyone, and she doesn't even learn anyone's names. I know. She's so terrible. And what's so funny is the house ignores her. (laughs) (laughs) The house never manifests itself to her. She doesn't even get to see Theo's bloody room. At some point, we begin to understand that what haunts Theo and Eleanor, though, is the house itself, or at least that's one way of looking at it. We're going to see that Jackson is not going to let us know for sure if there is a, such a thing as one way of looking at what we're seeing. She always makes us understand that there is more than one way to approach anything, but we have to try something. So let's just assume that it is the house, that it is haunted, and the house itself is zeroing in on our damsels. <laughs> okay. Uh, so if we review the first supernatural manifestation inside the house again, the one from chapter four, uh, we see that it starts with Eleanor and it starts by referencing her mother. <laughs> Eleanor wakes up saying, coming mother, coming, then realizes she's at Hill House and she thinks she hears knocking and uh, notes that it isn't her mother knocking. So she goes to Theo's room. Theo hears the knocking too. The noise gets louder. Eleanor throws herself away from the bed and runs to hold her hands against the door and screams, go away a few times, because that always works with a ghost. (laughs) It gets very cold. It also gets very quiet. But then the banging starts again, and there is padding and other sounds, and uh, the doorknob seems to move, and the wood of the door trembles and shakes, and the door really moves against the hinges. And Eleanor says, you can't get in. You know, then there's a giggle, then a laugh, and then it's all over. Uh, the doctor and Luke come in, and they haven't seen or heard a thing except these two screaming. So what do you think about that? Well, at first I was pretty sure it was all in Eleanor's head because it was about her mother and she had been dreaming. But then Theo saw things, too. And then I remembered uh, Eleanor has poltergeist powers. <laughs> so maybe Eleanor created all the noises down the hall and the shaky door herself. Yes, but Theo has telepathic powers. She can read people's minds, so maybe she's just in Eleanor's head. (laughs) (laughs) True, and so now we move to the next time the house manifests itself and see if we can get more out of it this time. Okay, so the next day when Luke goes and tries to get Mrs. Dudley to give them coffee outside their regularly mandated meal times, we have another manifestation, this one from Chapter 5. Chilled by his face and his voice and his smile, they got up silently and followed him through the doorway into the dark, long hallway, which had led back to the front hall. Here, Luke said, and a little winding shiver of sickness went down Eleanor's back when she saw that he was holding a lighted match up to the wall. It's writing, Eleanor asked, pressing closer to see. Writing, Luke said. I didn't even notice it until I was coming back. Mrs. Dudley said no. He added his voice tight. My flash. The doctor took his flashlight from his pocket, and under its light, as he moved slowly from one end of the hall to the other, the letters stood out clearly. Chalk. The doctor said, stepping forward to touch a letter with the tip of his finger, written in chalk. The writing was large and straggling and ought to have looked, Eleanor thought, as though it had been scribbled by bad boys on a fence. Instead, it was incredibly real, going in broken lines over the thick paneling of the hallways. From one end of the hallway to the other, the letters went, almost too large to read, even when she stood back against the opposite wall. Can you read it? Luke asked softly, and the doctor, moving his flashlight, read slowly, Help Eleanor come home. No. 
and Eleanor felt the words stop in her throat. She had seen her name as the doctor read it. It is me, she thought. It is my name standing out there so clearly. I should not be on the walls of this house. Wipe it off, please, she said, and felt Theodora's arm go around her shoulders. It's crazy, Eleanor said, bewildered. Crazy's the right word, Theodora said strongly. Come back inside, Neil, and sit down. Luke will get something and wipe it off. But it's crazy, Eleanor said, hanging back to see her name on the wall. Why? I want to point out that, again, we see the house is dividing people against each other. And while they talk about what happened, Theo suggests that Eleanor herself actually wrote the note. And I think it was about here in the book that I started to notice that we are really into Eleanor's head. We also see that uh, she doesn't say what she thinks at all. I mean, in fact, she mostly never says what she thinks. She thinks bad things about just about everyone. And she's a very critical person. True. Let's read where that kind of stands out. Nell, dear, Theodora said, I'm sorry. I must say something, Eleanor told herself. I must show them that I'm a good sport after all. A good sport. Let them think that I am ashamed of myself. I'm sorry, she said. I was frightened. Of course you were, the doctor said, and Eleanor thought how simple he is, how transparent. He believes every silly thing he has ever heard. He thinks even that Theodora shocked me out of hysteria. She smiled at him and thought, now I am back in the fold. I really thought you were going to start shrieking, Theodora said, coming to kneel by Eleanor's chair. I would have in your place, but we can't afford to have you break up, you know. We can't afford to have anyone but Theodora in the center of the stage, Eleanor thought. If Eleanor is going to be the outsider, she's going to be it all alone. She reached out and patted Theodora's head and said, thanks. I guess I was kind of shaky for a moment. I wondered if you two were going to come to blows, Luke said, until I realized that Theodora was doing. Smiling down into Theodora's bright, happy eyes, Eleanor thought, but that isn't what Theodora was doing at all. <laughs> you know, one of the things that irks me about this chalk note on the wall, it doesn't have punctuation. <laughs> oh, that's the worst thing. <laughs> well, I have to say, why would an accomplished writer not punctuate her spooky message? Are you really correcting the punctuation of a house? I mean, you have been inside a classroom way too well, long. Well, this is a great example of the power of punctuation, I might add. The problem is we can't know what exactly this message is supposed to mean without the proper grammar. Is she asking Eleanor for help and telling Eleanor to come home? Or is she telling someone to help Eleanor come home? This, of course, is Jackson messing with our heads. <laughs> what does this house want? Who is the haunter? Is Eleanor impersonating a ghost and addressing herself for the benefit of the other guests? Is there a ghost? Is the ghost her mother? Is there a different spirit in the house? A spirit that knows about her mother? Making her crazy? All of this could be true. Is there a mean person messing as with Eleanor? That's what Eleanor suggested. Oh, the power of a <laughs> comma. How it changes all the meaning. Exactly. Of course, we're never going to find out. Uh, but then we get to this manifestation in Theo's room. In this case, it's not what the house did to the girls. It's what the house had already done to Theo's room. And um, there's blood and a terrible stench. And all of Theo's clothes are covered in blood. And there's a message in blood on the wall. And it says, help Eleanor come home. Again, no punctuation, Christy. I know that's the most upsetting thing in a whole bloody scene. Well, it is, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> There are a couple other weird things, though. Uh, for one, everyone sees the blood. It's a shared experience. 
Uh, also, Eleanor isn't afraid, and she offers to help sketch out what is on the wall. And this really isn't a totally appropriate reaction, and, and we are going to see that this is a lot moving forward. Eleanor's reactions get less and less appropriate to this situation. By the end, she expresses joy when everyone else is feeling horror. And thirdly, Eleanor's main concern draws attention to her real fear, which isn't even a ghost. Since um, Theo has to borrow her clothes, her greater concern is if Theo will think her clothes are good enough for her. Uh, we also see her thinking this. She thought, without trying to find a reason, that she never felt such uncontrollable loathing for any person before. And, you know, and this is coming from a woman who had been emotionally abused by two family <laughs> members point. for years. Uh, so why does she hate Theo now? Well, it, it seems to me that uh, really her crippling self-doubt and her no self-acceptance is making it impossible for Eleanor to get what she wants most, and that is relationships. And she doesn't want to feel alone anymore, uh, but she thinks in ways which are going which we're going to see that they keep her from getting the one thing she wants most, which is human intimacy, you know, a family, so to speak. Well, her thoughts get darker. We see in a few short paragraphs later that she literally thinks this, I would like to hit her with a stick. <laughs> I would like to batter her with rocks. I hate her. She sickens me. She is all washed and clean and wearing my red sweater. And then I would like to watch her dying. <laughs> and as she thought this, she smiled. Well, there you go. I think we have found your imp of the perverse, <laughs> if you want the literary word for it, which is a term I love, by the way. Yeah, I guess uh, we did. Uh, we get into this interesting description from all the different characters about what fear is, too. And I think that's kind of worth uh, pointing out. Fear, the doctor said, is the relinquishment of logic. The willing relinquishing of reasonable patterns. We yield to it or we fight it, but we cannot meet it halfway. I was wondering earlier, Eleanor thought, feeling she had somehow an apology to make to all of them. I thought I was altogether calm, and yet now I know I was terribly afraid. She frowned, puzzled, and they waited for her to go on. When I am afraid, I can see perfectly the sensible, beautiful, not afraid side of the world. I can see chairs and tables and windows staying the same, not affected in the least. And I can see things like the careful woven texture of the carpet not even moving. But when I am afraid, I no longer exist in any relation to these things. I suppose because things are not afraid. I think we are only afraid of ourselves, the doctor said slowly. No, Luke said, of seeing ourselves clearly and without disguise. Of knowing what we really want, Theodora said. She pressed her cheek against Eleanor's hand, and Eleanor, hating the touch of her, took her hand away quickly. I am always afraid of being alone, Eleanor said and wondered. And I, talking like this, am I saying something I will re regret bitterly tomorrow? Am I making more guilt for myself? Those letters spelled out my name, and none of you know what that feels like. It's so familiar. And she gestured to them almost in appeal. Try to see, she said. It's my own dear name, and it belongs to me, and something is using it and writing it and calling me with its own and my own name. She stopped and said, looking from one to, of them to another, even down onto Theodora's face, looking up at her. Look, there's only one of me, and it's all I've got. I hate seeing myself devolve and slip and separate so that I'm living in one half, my mind, and I see the other half of my helpless and frantic and driven, and I can't stop it. But I know I'm not really going to be hurt, and yet time is so long, and even a second goes on and on, and I could stand any of it if I could only surrender. 
Eleanor seems to be losing her mind. Well, you know, we can use the technical term like psychosis, <laughs> or we can use colloquial terms like her cheese is slipping off her cracker. Well. But, and I'd also like to point out, in like two short sentences, all four characters discuss what they feared most inadvertently. So it's been revealed. Wow. Well, Eleanor seems to be changing what she wants. In the beginning, all she wanted was friends, to not be alone, and being in the house was the price to pay to have new friends. But now it feels like that her hopes of this new family are shattered, at least in her mind. She doesn't trust or like her friends. She finds the doctor foolish. She clearly hates Theo, and we're going to see that she hates Luke, too. She calls him a rake, which, by the way, is an old-fashioned word for womanizer. (laughs) But he's not even like that. He's actually very helpful to the Montagues and even to the girls. What Eleanor doesn't hate, though, is that house. In fact, she's flattered by the house. She's personified the house, if you want to look at it that way. Or you can believe that the house is interacting with the girls. But Eleanor understands the house to be alive and have agency. And the house has chosen her. And yet, even if you accept that the house is alive, it's a house. It's not human. It's not capable to interact with her in any kind of healthy way. But Eleanor talks here about surrendering to (laughs) the house. Well, psychologically, this is such an interesting thing that Jackson has done. I mean, it's um, so much easier to have a relationship with something that's not real. Uh, That's the allure of virtual relationships, isn't it? I mean, uh, you can control those. Real people are always going to be problematic and complicated. I mean, relationships with humans, by definition, will be messy. And Eleanor has been burned uh, severely by her past relationships, and her memory of those relationships is what really haunts her. The end of Chapter 5. When I read this, I thought it was the creepiest part that I'd read up to that point in the book. Eleanor and Theo are sleeping in the same room because Theo's room has blood all over it. When we read this part of the book... We're not quite sure where they are physically at in relation to each other. Jackson leaves it very vague. And let me read it. Now, Eleanor thought, perceiving that she was lying sideways on the bed in the black darkness, holding with both hands to Theodora's hand, holding so tight she could feel the fine bones of Theodora's fingers. Now, I will not endure this. They think to scare me. Well, they have. I am scared. And more than that, I am a person. I am a human. I am a walking, reasoning, humorous human being. And I will take a lot from this lunatic, filthy house. But I will not go along with hurting a child. No, I will not. I will, by God, get my mouth to open right now. And I will yell. And I will. I will yell. Stop it, she shouted. And the lights were on the way they had left them. And Theodora was sitting up in bed, startled and disheveled. What? Theodora was saying. What, Nell? What? God, God, Eleanor said, flinging herself out of bed and across the room to stand shuddering in a quarter. God, God, whose hand was I holding? (laughs) Well, uh, it is horrifying because, once again, we have no idea what's going on. I mean, what is real and what isn't? And for me, that is where I see Jackson's metaphor Uh, for real life really taking root. And uh, it is where I see her personal life really intersect with her art and, you know, what is real and what isn't. And uh, when we become disillusioned with the relationships that are closest to us, that is the question we find ourselves asking. What is real? 
is uh, any of the stuff that I've built my life on real? Have the people I have most trusted been gaslighting me? Uh, how much have I believed that was a flat out lie or worse, you know, the uh, opposite of what actually is true? Can I even trust myself anymore? I mean, Christy, we've talked about Shirley and Stanley's relationship, but I think it's interesting to bring up one more time because this sort of thing happened to Jackson, not once, but twice. Sure. Well, their relationship at first was really amazing. Stanley seemed to be what many girls would want. He read an article Shirley wrote in their school newspaper. They were students at Syracuse at the time, and he determined right then and there that he was going to marry Shirley Jackson. According to an article written during their lifetime, Stanley said this. He closed the magazine, demanded to know who Shirley Jackson was. He had, he said, decided to marry her. And for her, this was totally flattering. It was intoxicating. After all, she was the fat, ugly girl, as her mother had constantly been reminding her all of her life. So Jackson, and let me quote the New Yorker here, said this. Jackson had already begun to experience the anxiety, depression, and the fears of people that plagued her throughout her life. Hyman seemed a savior, a brilliant man who didn't think she was ugly, who understood her and loved her, who believed in her promise as a writer. And all of that, by the way, was absolutely true about Stanley. But here's the deception part. She wrote, as in Jackson, she wrote him one time that she felt tricked by Hyman. And she says this, you wrote, you once wrote me a letter telling me that I would never be lonely again. I think that was the first most dreadful lie you ever told me. Shirley, at some point in their marriage, came to understand that there were ugly realities about her relationship that she had chosen to ignore up to that point. Uh, And I can see this kind of illustrated in those opening lines of Hill House, those famous lines where she says that the problem is when you lose the dream, you lose the illusion and reality becomes your enemy. In her case, she had always ignored the reality that she was never going to have physical or emotional intimacy in her marriage with Stanley. We know from her personal writings how devastating this was to her. And she used all these emotions, I think, maybe to characterize Eleanor because we can see feelings of isolation and loneliness and disillusionment. And even if the expectations aren't really realistic, uh, the loss of those things can absolutely or seem to lead a person to break with sanity. I mean, Eleanor is going to lose her sanity. We can already see that she kind of <laughs> already it's has. Slipping. Uh, well, what is interesting to me is that many of these behaviors that we are going to see in Eleanor, um, their behaviors that psychologists since that time have come to put names on. And I'm not going to say she's uh, schizophrenic or anything like that, although she might be. We can't know that. But Jackson is describing real things that people really struggle with. I mean, I'm absolutely sure she has either seen intimately or experienced herself many of Eleanor's struggles with reality, uh, be it with her marriage or her mother or just herself. And as Dr. Montague has said in his book more than once, putting a name on something tames it. Uh, Again, I'm sure something Jackson herself understood. We know that Jackson spent time with doctors and uh, assuming they helped her, they likely helped her put names on some of these personal ghosts. But Eleanor experiences things that have no names and there is genuine bewilderment on Eleanor's part and for a good reason she doesn't understand what is happening to her and uh, therefore she has no way to fight back I mean the house has the advantage 
What are you talking about? Well, um, there are lots of things going on that have names, but since we're starting in chapter 6, let's look at how Eleanor is relating to both Luke and Theo. We see really several uh, what we would call dissociative symptoms. Oh, dear, you and the vocab. Hey, well, I've had to listen to you and your <laughs> punctuation turn okay, about as point, fair good play. Good point, good <laughs> point. I know, but let's conceptualize this. She's disassociating herself from reality, and that's what that means. Eleanor feels like the surrounding world or reality has somehow changed for her, and um, she is an outside observer in her own world. Because we are privy to her private thoughts, we can understand this, but it's also understandable that none of the characters have any idea what is going on in her head. Uh, Because we are also uh, well wedded to her mind, we as readers can't tell very easily, or at least I can't, if Eleanor is even awake or if this is a dream, I mean, is the house really singling her out uh, or, or is it her own mind playing tricks on her? And uh, she's prone to fantasy for sure. And we know that she has nightmares. But uh, as we get further along in the book, we as readers begin to understand that this is a serious distortion beyond what regular people might experience. We also see that at some point she and Theo break and what they're experiencing. In other words, they're not interpreting it the same. In the last section of chapter 6, Theo and Eleanor are both outside, just like they were at the beginning. Basically, they're arguing about Luke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not atypical for girls in this situation. I mean, honestly, after all, there is only one dude there. (laughs) Oh, good point. Competition. (laughs) But uh, this picnic experience is strange. First of all, it's outside, and it almost feels like a vision of sorts. There are lights. There's this picnic. But the main reason that it's bizarre is that Eleanor sees something that's nice. Uh, So that's what we see. She's not scared. Theo never actually says what she sees. We don't know, but we do know that she is scared out of her mind and won't talk about it. From this point on, the experiences of Theo and the ones of Eleanor are not the same. Wow. I mean, it does sound very much like some psychotic symptoms. What is that? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, you know, during a period of psychosis uh, or an episode, uh, a person's thoughts and their perceptions are really disturbed. And uh, the person that's involved, you know, they might have difficulty understanding what's real and what's not. And uh, symptoms of psychosis are very interesting. They can include delusions, false beliefs and hallucinations. Uh, other symptoms include incoherent and nonsense speech and uh, behavior that's really inappropriate for the situation. And a person in a psychotic episode may also experience some depression and anxiety and sleep problems. And social withdrawal and lack of motivation and even difficulty functioning. And of course, if you live in a haunted house, everyone is going to have that. That's and, a good uh, point. And that's the genius of setting a story in a haunted house. For me, uh, we can see what this feels like for Nora from the inside. Well, they've been having uh, all of those things that you just described since they got there. <laughs> but in this case, things are changing and the experiences are different for each girl. Theo reverts back into reality when she gets back with the others. She makes jokes about the next paranormal experience in the house and the next time the house gets to shaking. Uh, She says this, uh, A hill house went dancing, taking us along on a mad midnight fling. 
At least I think it was dancing. It might have been turning somersaults. So compare that to, to what goes on in Eleanor's head. We haven't seen it all yet. His voice trailed away. Eleanor could hear and see him far away in the distant room and where he and Theodora and the doctor still waited in the churning darkness where she felt endlessly nothing was real except her own hands white around the bedpost. She could see them very small and see them tighten when the bed rocked and the wall leaned forward and the door turned sideways far away. Somewhere there was a giant shaking crash as some huge thing came headlong. It must be the tower, Eleanor thought, and I suppose it would stand for years. We are lost, lost. The house is destroying itself. She heard the laughter all over, coming thin and lunatic, rising in its little crazy tune and thought, No, it's over for me. It is too much, she thought. I will relinquish my possession of this self of mine, abdicate, give over willingly what I never wanted at all. Whatever it wants of me, it can have. (laughs) Well, to me, Theo seems to be sort of reality testing and kind of defining the events and monitoring herself and her world. Now, Eleanor has really given up on that type of stuff. And in fact, she seems to have a reduced ability to really even distinguish between the house as an individual and the other people as individuals. And this affects her moods and her moods are really all over the place. And before we get to the grand finale and how to put all this together, I want to revisit Mrs. Montague and Arthur. (laughs) Your favorite. (laughs) I know. They really help break the tension in the book. And at this point, it's tense. Uh, Just when you're horrified, Mrs. Montague, at least she makes me laugh. And part of the reason she makes me laugh is because I've met this woman and men just like this woman many times. Of course, the character in the book is a woman, but she's absolutely omniscient in her own mind and absolutely 100% wrong 100% (laughs) of the time. And we all know people that are 100% sure they are right and 100% wrong 100% of the time. I mean, she gets out that goofy planchette board and all of a sudden she's convinced there's nuns and monks and nothing Mr. Montague can say will ever change her mind. She's just right. And she knows all the rules of ghostdom (laughs) and defining all their behaviors and what they will and won't do. Well, we can laugh because it's not our life, but, you know, one time I did have a a boss, I will point out. He was a male boss, but... um, (laughs) He, too, was 100% wrong 100% of the time, and uh, working for someone like that came with consequences. Um, on a <laughs> and then poor Arthur. He thinks he's such an ideal person, a perfect model. I mean, he doesn't drink. He doesn't do anything, at least improper. He's an excellent example as a headmaster, but we can clearly tell he's a laughingstock. <laughs> <laughs> well, he thinks he has the respect of the world, but we can all see that he's a buffoon, but... He's Mrs. Montague's lapdog, oh, really. really is. It's horrible, but also horribly funny and very relatable. And I've met one or two Arthurs in my day as well. <laughs> well, by Chapter 8, Eleanor confesses that she can hear everything all over the house. On their walk to the brook, she also confesses that she feels like she's responsible for her mother's death. She claims that her mother knocked on the wall and she didn't hear her, and that's why she died. Theo tries to talk her out of it. Uh, But as we look at how much of what the house does and how it resembles Eleanor's past guilt, we understand that the house, whatever that is, is seducing her at her most vulnerable point. She's afraid she committed matricide. Oh, my. 
Well, whether it is the house or just herself, we don't know. It could be her mind playing tricks on her, but the delusions are getting worse. And really, so are the inappropriate mood swings. And she reaches out one more time to Theo, also inappropriately. She approaches Theo and tells Theo that after the summer, she's moving in and going to live wherever Theo lives, even though she doesn't even know where that is. She wants to follow Theo home. Well, Theo rejects that. (laughs) For good reason. I mean, it's an inappropriate request. I mean, you can't just tell someone you're moving in with them. Uh, Eleanor has really thin boundaries. Uh, She has thin boundaries between herself and the outside world as well as, you know, thin boundaries between herself and her different states of consciousness. And her relationship with her thoughts and emotions and memories are just as confused as her relationships with other people. Uh, Eleanor's proneness to fantasies with Theo are immediately rejected by Theo because Theo's a very pragmatic character. She's not going into this fantasy world with Eleanor. And then all of a sudden, Eleanor claims to be happy. Then he immediately thinks Theo and Luke are talking about her. Then she changes, and they're so kind. She also claims to literally hear a grasshopper leap. Eleanor seems more in tune with the house than she is with other people. The house sings to her, go in and out the windows, go forth and faith your lover, face your lover. These are things that the house is saying, and no one but her can hear the singing. She doesn't question this at all. In fact, she embraces it. Her complete disintegration is expressed in chapter nine. I mean, she gets up in the middle of the night and says, mother, A voice responds back to her. Come along. She laughs. She wakes every single person up in that house, including Mrs. Montague and Arthur, which she probably should have left sleeping. But she curtsies and dances to the statue of Hugh Crane, who is watching her. Then she goes to the top of the tower, which apparently is a physically dangerous thing to do in the house. <laughs> and she describes that whole experience as intoxicating. And uh, notice what else she observed to herself. Time has ended now, she thought. All that is gone and left behind. And that poor little lady praying still for me. I mean, that was a reference taken out of context from chapter one. And, um, and of course, Luke has to go up there and bring her down. He's not happy about that, but he does it. <laughs> and then the next day, she's humiliated about what all had happened. Unbeknownst to her, the doctor has made the decision that she's out. Mrs. Montague has already called her sister, who we notice is more concerned about the car and the disruption of their upcoming vacation than she is about her sister's well-being. Eleanor you know, expresses that she doesn't want to leave, but Dr. Montague is firm. She is no longer his guest. She's been rejected. When our two damsels in distress say goodbye to each other, we can easily observe that the house hasn't had any power over Theo, But Eleanor is not free from its influence. The last page of the book is really frightful. They waved back at her dutifully, standing still, watching her. They will watch me down the drive as far as they can see, she thought. It is only civil for them to look at me until I am out of sight. So now I'm going. Journeys end in lovers' meeting. But I won't go, she thought, and laughed aloud to herself. Hill House is not as easy as they are. Just by telling me to go away, they can't make me leave. Not if Hill House means me to stay. Go away, Eleanor, she chanted aloud. Go away, Eleanor. We don't want you anymore. 
Not in our hill house. Go away, Eleanor. You can't stay here, but I can, she sang. But I can. They don't make the rules around here. They can't turn me out or shut me out or laugh at me or hide from me. I won't go, and hill house belongs to me. With that, she perceived, as quick cleverness, she pressed her foot down hard on the accelerator. They can't run fast enough to catch me this time, she thought, but by now they must begin to realize. I wonder who notices first. Luke? Almost certainly. I can hear them calling now, she thought, and the little footsteps running through Hill House and the soft sound of the hills pressing closer. I am really doing it, she thought turning the wheel to send the car directly at the great tree at the curve of the driveway. I am really doing it. I am doing this all by myself now at last. This is me. I am really, really, really doing it by myself. In the unending, crashing second before the car hurled into the tree, she thought clearly, Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why don't they stop me? What are we to think? It's so awful. Uh, no one likes being rejected, obviously, <laughs> uh, but Eleanor has a long history of rejection and perhaps, you know, expectations to be rejected. And she then goes on to behave in a way that leaves no one any choice but to reject her. You know, once again, the thing she's trying to get, she can't. Uh, it's a horrible and painful cycle. And we already saw that she was prone to misinterpret and overreact to things uh, that the others were saying to her. And we know she struggled to form connections and uh, even really undermined her newfound relationship with both Theo and Luke. So she formed the bond with the house, but it wasn't real. And the house betrayed her. What Dr. Montague said at the beginning proved to be true. The house never did anything to her. It's what she did to herself. And I kind of think that's how Jackson understood it as well. And honestly, it's what happened to the world during COVID that really (laughs) reminds me of what happened to Eleanor. It modernizes this metaphor of a haunted house for me. That's interesting. Uh, If we see it like that, really many of us found ourselves at Hill House <laughs> so true. during the pandemic from one day to the next, caught off guard. And um, how many of us around the globe were trapped in a literal physical house far too long? And how many of us were uh, trapped in imbalances of power within those homes? And uh, how many of us felt anxiety and rejection, whether it was real or imagined? And how many of us felt we were losing our grip of what was real or digital as the entire world became virtual? I mean, a, a word that literally means fake, I like <laughs> to point, point out. I wonder if Jackson would believe uh, that the entire globe one day would be trapped <laughs> at Hill House with shifting walls and uneven views to the outside world. Yes. And the gift of Jackson is that she did her best to give us a name. Maybe not a clinical vocabulary word, but a metaphorical one, a way to identify what we have experienced. In Hill House, we have a place where we can see our anxieties physically expressed. They're fleshed out and identified, and Jaxus reminds us that we're not alone, that what we see may not be as bad as we think, and we have options. Unlike Eleanor, or maybe just like Eleanor, we don't have to be trapped. We can get in that car, as difficult as it may be, and drive our own life on a road out, a road to recovery, a road to relationships, a road to intimacy, a road to a future of possibilities. 
And if possible, leaving all those toxic relationships back inside. I mean, what a book. I mean, Christy, I, I see why you shy away from these uh, <laughs> sorts of pieces. and uh, They can get to you. But on Epside, I do think reading about it really demystifies some things. And there is value to that as well. Well, of course, I agree. I'm, I'm not scared of this book anymore anyway. <laughs> Although I'm not picking up Stephen King yet. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so speaking of Stephen King, did you know that uh, King's story, Rainy Season, is supposedly a rewrite of the lottery. And uh, if you go to Amazon and want to order a hard copy of The Haunting of Hill House with Stephen King's introduction in it, you can get one for $850. Oh, my gosh. I did not. I hope you're ready for the lottery because that's coming next week. Um, Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of Shirley Jackson and her novel, The Haunting of Hill House. As always, please help us spread the word by uh, reposting an episode this week on your social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram, and visit us on uh, any of those platforms as well. If you're a teacher, check out our literacy support materials. We have listening guides for almost all of our 150 episodes. You can find it all at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Thanks again. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.